Welcome to the Kind Faith Bible Podcast. Conversations about how we read the Bible for newcomers and nerds alike. Hey everybody, welcome to the Kind Faith Bible Podcast. We're excited to be here. I'm Jeff. Tyler. And we're going to talk about questions that have been raised and some other uh, interesting things that have been brought up in recent days uh, from many of you. And so we're so thankful for the questions, thoughts, concerns that you've brought to us. And we're going we're gonna to dive in. You, you raised something we, we should have recorded a moment ago, but, <laughs> but we, we want to talk about some of these questions. Um, and so I should set up a context. We're going to walk through them. A couple of the questions have been around um, where we were at with apocalyptic literature and the idea of scripture as code or scripture as uh, communicating the truth of God, not through code, but through symbol. So yeah. um, you, you said there's a controversy going on about the first word in Genesis. Yes. So that, it, it just triggered for me. So Back in the apocalyptic series, that's like two months ago now, I think. Mm-hmm. But we did talk about reading Revelation and all of the different apocalyptic um, writings, not as a code to break about how to interpret my year, 2021, but as symbol that points us to some deeper truths about God, about who we are, all that stuff. And then I got this, this was asked to me just this week, um, that is a very clear example of reading scripture as code. That not to me, and I don't, this is, I don't mind being a little more offensive on this one because it's just infuriating. It is <laughs> absolutely the wrong way to read the Bible. But, and we'll get to that. So, so the controversy is uh, called what? So, it's not, a, this is, it, they, they call this the Bereshit prophecy. You could look this up. It, better uh, sheet prophecy. Genesis one one end times prophecy. Look that one up. The very and the very first word of Genesis one verse one is better sheet in Hebrew. It means in the topness of time at the at the beginning of it all. That's where we get the word beginning yeah, in, in Genesis the beginning. And all that. So our our English in the beginning is one compound word in Hebrew. Better sheet. Oh, so. You could look this up. We're, I won't get into all. You're this, not making this up, is what you're telling. Me. No, it's totally out there. This is a full, full blown way of reading. But what they were doing, uh, this teacher in particular, and and others, I looked it up. There's more than just one guy doing this. But they look at the first word in the Bible, and it's and then they piece it apart every single letter. So the the equivalent in English B R A S T, right? But it's Bet Reish Aleph. And so then saying, well, the, the bait is a picture of a home and it's the numerical value of 10. Oh, it's uh, numerology. So it's all this numerology code breaking, but they're looking in, in uh, so maybe back up. It is true in Hebrew. There's not separate, uh, letter, separate uh, consonants for numbers, right? The, the letters themselves can take the place of numbers one through 10, hundreds, 200, 400, all that stuff. So they were completely breaking apart every letter of this first word, Bereshit, into all its numerical value, into its original. So the, the, the bet looks like a house. The resh looks like a hand, things like that. And so it was Resh just, looks like a hand. By the way, resh is like this. It's a, 
L that's upside down with a longer bottom leg. So it basically looks like the corner of a square. Yeah. So he, the... It looks like a hand. It was going through... I'm confused. Well, it, so what it was doing was taking both, like, the pictures represented, the words themselves represented, mm-hmm. the numbers, and turning it into codes about years and the trajectory of all of time. And, and they were finding that in this one word, Bereshit, God had already prophesied um, the full fall of Israel, the coming of Jesus, him dying on the cross, and the end times. Like It's all in the six-letter Hebrew word. Yeah. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I get the appeal of it. Yeah. Right? The, the appeal for me is scripture is so... Um, I don't want to say magical. That's the wrong word. I don't want to say mystical because even that's the wrong word. But it is so um, deep with meaning that I want to. Yeah. It, it wouldn't surprise me that God in his wisdom would pack incredible meaning into a single word. So I get the appeal of that. Yeah. But so, that's... The like infuriating you, part, It what it feels like it's doing is it's it's saying... The book, the story God gave us is not good enough. And I need to get behind the words of the text to find some hidden code to break because that's actually more meaningful than the actual story God has given me. And this is a, is I would call it a larger sin of reading that's been perpetuated by pastors in the American church coming out of the, the, the kind of techno technocracy yeah technocracy that we we live in which Mm. how many pastors do you hear say this in the original language it says this and that's important but it opens up pandora's box for the average congregation sitter who goes oh i don't know hebrew greek so there must be some mysterious thing i've got to find deeper in it and it creates a mindset that there's some code and if i just know enough and if somebody shows me enough I'll find the proper technology to unearth this thing to be able to apply it to the things of my life to make it make sense. It's it's yeah. it's it sounds like a weird connection, but it's the reason you buy an iPhone. It's mm-hmm. got technical technological solutions to problems in your life, and I want scripture to be a technological solution to yeah. problems in my life. And maybe just to tease, I think our next series, you already mentioned it last week, but we want to talk about discerning God's will. Oh man, and can't wait. That the, the, the difference between this is this incredible book that God has given us. It's the story that points us to who God is and how do we actually have relationship with our creator. And the process, it's a, it's, it's, it is a lifelong journey of learning. How do I take in this story and learn how to dive into it and keep turning things over and dig a little deeper. And it's this path of wisdom. How do we actually discern the right way to live and the right way to have a relationship with God? But we've, we've hijacked that if we think it's about turning, going back to some original Hebrew word of one word and turning it into some code about uh, that, that just happens to, to find its fulfillment in the fall of 2021 is, yeah. by the way, when the second coming's going to oh. happen. Yeah. Is that, that what the sheet prophecy that's, says? That's what it said, yeah. I'm super... I believe it. Yeah. Then. So... I'm ready for Jesus to come back. So maybe... And I, I was thinking more about this idea, code versus symbol. There's a couple examples even we could point to the book of Revelation, but I wanted to think... I was thinking of some good guardrails. 
Because there is on a, on the flip side, the Hebrew the Hebrew writers were incredibly poetic, and they did understand that that numbers mattered, and sometimes there is a connection with the the numbers of a name. Like every Hebrew letter also corresponds to a number. You know, there there are times when they actually are trying to do that, and so it's not like we need, we need to say never even think about the numbers behind the words or stuff like that. But, uh, and this Genesis 1-1 gives us a good guardrail. So uh, an example, in the Hebrew, the first sentence, Genesis 1-1, is seven words. Mm-hmm. In English, it's not seven words. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is seven words, right? In the Hebrew. Yep. Now, that number seven is huge. The number seven is this huge theme through the whole first chapter of Genesis. God created the world in seven days, and the authors are doing something there, highlighting this repetition of seven, even to the point of the very first line is seven words. And there's a couple other repetitions of seven beyond just the, the obvious seven days. And I would step back to that and say, there's something artistic going on here. We're looking at a masterpiece. We're looking at a Van Gogh or, you know, some of those famous Renaissance painters. Rembrandt. Rembrandt, Van Gogh, whatever. And so what we're doing here, the way I, the guardrail I would offer is to say, if, if some of those patterns that we find accentuate and highlight some of the themes that are already obvious in the story that we're looking at, that's great. Me, me knowing that there's seven words in the Hebrew for Genesis 1-1 does not give me a whole new mystery, mysterious code. It just kind of gives me a sense that, oh, there's some art behind this. Mm. Like, there was some thoughtfulness going on here. And it helps to maybe highlight the Hebrew author wanted me to realize that seven was important here for some reason. Yeah. But it doesn't bring me off into some uncharted territory of like, code about the end time so the quite yeah the questions we've been getting so we said we were going to answer your questions and the questions that we've been getting have been around this idea of of code versus symbol and you know we we i don't think we offhandedly but we we it made it look like we were dismissing some of the numerology of scripture and some of the some of the um uh art or hidden meanings that are there that need to be discovered and unearthed. Yeah. So people um, have, there's one that um, is popular. The, the opening genealogy of Matthew, for instance, mm-hmm. has these three sets of 14. And uh, at least one way to read that is to tie that to the name of David, which in the Hebrew, DVD, um, add up to 14. And so it might be a way for Matthew, the author, to be highlighting the genealogy of Jesus is underlining his kingship. Right mm-hmm. now, all of that 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 there's debate as in all of biblical literature if that's actually what Matthew meant, but that could be a very likely reason why he separated into fourteen, fourteen, fourteen because it's a way of saying David, 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 and the son of David is here. Um, what I would point out, like, so that's some numerology. That's a little bit of a little bit of code. pattern code, but that observation does not give me a brand new understanding of the text. Actually, it just highlights. The, the straight reading of Matthew 1 still tells you that Jesus is the coming king without even knowing any of that. So the, let's, let's, let's dig deeper into the difference between symbol and code. Yeah. Because code is a hidden message within uh, existing texts. Yeah. That's code. Yeah. So Russian spies would get newspapers and um, uh, personal ads would be posted 
and they would know to look at every seventh letter. And instead of reading, this is an ad for a roommate for someone, they read, um, you need to go to Tennessee. Yeah, that's a good example. And they get that. So it's an entirely departed meaning. What we're talking about is symbol and poetic and artistic writing that drives you deeper into the intended meaning of the text. Yeah. And that's what's going on. So if the 14, 14, 14 says, David, 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 that, that actually aligns with what the text is already saying. It's not giving you a brand new thing. Right. And that's what you're getting at. Right. Yeah. 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 So we want to take the text for what it is. And again, we say this all the time, but the primary reason we read any part of the Bible is to help us get to know God. It should point us to God. So the question we're asking is, what am I learning about God? It should not be, what am I learning about my year here in 2021? You know, and so that, uh, if it's a completely departed meaning, we're, we're headed into bad territory. But yeah. if it's helping me appreciate the artistry of the text in, at hand, and it's actually helping me underline some of the things that are already there... Go for it. And I would, I would, I would, I push a little bit on the appreciate the artistry phrase. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's adding nuance to the brilliance of the text. So yeah. the great hope in what we're saying is you can pick up your Bible and just read it, and everything you need to know about God is there. And we're saying the more you study it, the more God brings a depth of his meaning. So let's let's just take the controversial 14, 14, 14, David, David, David. I get to read that and say, oh, I see that it's clearly making a line from, from David to Jesus in the last half of it, or the last third of it, right? It's clearly making a line from David to Jesus. So that's there. That's, that's awesome. And I get to say, and, and look at how the rest of it is structured to to declare that Jesus is David. So this isn't just a, hey, Jesus is David. This is a, hey, Jesus is David. Yeah. And it shouts it louder. It it emphasizes it in a way that makes it richer for me in the discovery. Yeah. And and that's that's powerful. So so one isn't better than the other. One's just, it, it pulls you deeper. It makes it richer. Yeah. And that's where I go. I go back to the pastors who say in the Greek or in the Hebrew. For those of you who are listening, please apply this test every time you hear that. <laughs> is it helping me understand the text or is it serving the pastor's point? <laughs> that's, I, I have an example of this. That's Yeah, I, I want your example. <laughs> that's the test because, yeah. because God bless it. I do it. I make the mistake often where I, I'm trying to make a point and I know... I'm, my point is weak. And so in my fear that my point is weak, I grab Greek or Hebrew to strengthen it because I know nobody can question it. <laughs> and it's an ego play on my part. And we're all vulnerable to that. But more pastors are vulnerable. Some pastors are more vulnerable than others. And we have to, our job as pastors is to fight with tooth and nail putting ourselves into the sermon. And so we, we've got to fight the urge to strengthen our points by appealing to Greek and Hebrew when it serves our point. But when it serves the text, it's wonderful. Yeah. My uh, professor of Old Testament 
John Golden Gay talked about how um, like he, he was talking about this like how how necessary is it for pastors Bible scholars to learn the original languages and he said you know it's maybe five ten percent on a good day of of like deeper understanding of the text comes out if you can read it in its original language um, but that that is a very small sliver right and he was trying to make the point like yeah there is something valuable it's not like nobody should ever do it there is something I I think uh, more about the the depth and the richness of the text for me. It's not like every every day I'm coming up with, oh, nobody knew this before, because, right? But because I can read Hebrew, no, it's nothing like that. But he says, yeah, maybe like about five percent of of the nuance and depth and beauty comes out if you can read it in the original language. But we should emphasize, like, that's a good ninety five percent. That means everyone, no matter what your education, you should be able to read the Bible in your own language and get quite a lot out of it. So yeah, it's not that there's no benefit, but it should not become a, well, because I can read it in the original, I have some, I have unlocked some secret that you would never be able to unlock. Like that. Yep. And, And that's where I go back to when pastors use the Greek and Hebrew to strengthen their personal points. Even if the point is grounded in the text, but, but they're not using it to amplify the text. It is fueling the code breaking mentality around scripture Mm. because now everybody subconsciously hears that this this hebrew or greek is providing meaning that i couldn't see on my own and so there's got to be more hidden meaning in there so i'm going to go start trying to listen to and hear all these people who talk about codes and numbers and all of that to find the hidden meanings in the text it, it, yeah. it's, um, it's not helpful. What do you think this, um, going deeper into this, what, my own, maybe some of my own motivation, and this would be a good conversation, but I find probably when, when I would say I've, I've maybe used original language the best is if the English word simply has become too familiar mm. to then replace it with its original word, not because I'm unlocking some code, but just to kind of startle us out of, oh, I always hear it this way. Mm-hmm. So like we, we talk about grace so much. Do mm-hmm. we even know what it means mm-hmm. as, a, as a church or repentance? Do I really know what repentance means? And so not, not because the, the Greek metanoia helps you understand it better, but because if I read the text and I replace it with the original, it, it, it might jog and be like, oh, there's something else. Let me, let me almost redefine this word again yeah. kind of thing. So that, that's more along the journey of like, let's dig into this. Let's, let's do a whole series on repentance. But your English word of repentance is, it has become too flat or your, yeah. your English word of grace has become too flat. Let's bring it back just so that we can almost redefine it again and rediscover it. So that, that would be yeah. more where, where I want to go, uh, and, and sparingly. You sh- it shouldn't be every sermon like you're saying. But maybe that's a tendency. That, that's when we should. Yeah, I, 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 my sense? rules have been, and they're re- very loose rules. But, uh, guidelines is a better way to say it than yeah. rules. My guidelines have been, is, is, is the congregation's understanding going to be helped by using this Greek Hebrew word in de- in the definition of the English word, and and oftentimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. Um, the second rule is: Do I need this to point out the patterns? 
Because a lot of times the patterns that yeah. are in the original text get missed. And the patterns, again, aren't code, but they're a powerful way to to bring out the emphasis that the biblical writer is actually trying to make. That's there in the text, right. but it can get lost in the English jumble. So I think, I think bringing out patterns, deepening definition... And and then even bringing out larger usage around um, in in its historical context. So those are kind of my that's a good my one. big. So like metanoeo, you know, being able to point out that hey, here's this this Greek word that means repentance, but it was used politically as well. It's yeah. not just a biblical spiritual transaction between you and God that you you know you repent in your um, in your heart and and everything's fine. Mm. Um, so I, I try to do that, but I try to limit my Greek and Hebrew, honestly, because I, yeah, I, I, I am very aware of mine and other preachers tendencies to use it to sound smart. Is it just a simple way to say yeah. it? And we've talked so much about, we want our preaching to make it feel like anyone could have come up with this. Like we don't want to be the experts that then people in our, uh, who are listening think, wow, I'm so glad they're there because I would never have been able to read the Bible without my pastor here. Um, and that, that's a, a dangerous tendency in the church today. But, and hopefully uh, the, the, the goal of like a healthy church, a healthy preacher is I'm, I'm talking about scripture in a way that invites everyone to realize, oh, I could, I could read scripture for myself. Mm -hmm. I could figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I totally there. So do we need to talk any more about this question? Code versus symbol? I mean, there's a lot, but that's, we, we, we've got, a lot. We, 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 we might what? just be doing revelation apocalypse for this one. I think so. So let me do this. Yeah. Let me do this next, next question. And it came from, um, someone that, um, we love because, uh, he consistently comments and we love you. You know who you are. Um, <laughs> Uh, our electrician friend, if you need specificity there. <laughs> he asks, if Jesus warned his followers to flee the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, should we not expect him to remove his people from the tribulation and suffering to come? And this was a question specifically around the rapture, because we dug into that, if you if you remember, and really concluded that biblically there's not a lot of evidence there for a rapture. There's a couple texts, um, but in their context, historically, it's really questionable whether they were actually referring to yeah. um, us uh, escaping earth and heading to heaven and leaving earth for its destruction and yeah. being, being happily in the bosom of Abraham, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and the, the, the motivation for, for a lot of the teachings around a rapture theology is this idea that God would not allow his people to suffer wrath and tribulation. Mm -hmm. And so God's going to take us away from the world. Mm -hmm. um, this, the technical dispensationalist theology would be a pre-tribulation rapture, right? So right. God's going to actually, in the blink of an eye, whisk us away, and then there's going to be seven years of intense tribulation where we are actually gone yeah and the logic of yeah. it just just to affirm the logic of it and if this is a position you hold you're you're not on infirm ground 
that it is that God is a God of love. God promises consistently to be a, a strong tower, um, a, a rock that is higher than um, one who lifts us up on eagle's wings. And therefore we, we read in that context and we think, well, the, the, the description of what happens in the tribulations is horrific. So yeah. those two things emotionally um, that God would allow his people, his loved children to just abide in that yeah. nastiness is, is horrible. So that that's the logical thinking. There's, there's grounds for that. So if you're in that position and you're there, yeah, that's, that's okay. But I don't know if that's a full picture of God. I mean, my immediately yeah. thought of, of Joseph and his life in Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, gets thrown in a pit, gets sold into slavery, gets thrown into jail. Yeah. I mean, it, it horrific. And he's God's chosen. Um, he was one of the 12 and he's right. God's chosen people. And, and the, the chosen tool to redeem is not to redeem Israel, but to help Israel out of the famine. And yeah. So in this question, it honestly, it made me pause and maybe even re-clarify and think through it again. So I was really grateful for this question because I think my initial response, probably in our, in our initial conversation about it, the whole idea I kind of brushed off to say, no, Stories like that all through the New Testament, there's a clear call that God's people are suffering alongside the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Paul, the apostle, repeatedly writes about how he's actually filling in the suffering, lacking on yeah. behalf of his people. Whipped, and, yeah, beaten, so, left for dead. So maybe I went far on that end and say, no, of course, like we're in the world. We're supposed to be, we're going to be suffering along with it. But then this question, because we did bring up the fact that Jesus did... Uh, warn his people, when you see these particular signs, when Rome is surrounding Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. get out of there. And this was a specific historical event that Jesus saw down the road some 40 years after his ministry. Rome did surround Jerusalem and all the Jews left in Jerusalem picked up the sword and tried to fight this, this monster of Rome and everybody died. The Roman army tore down the temple, all that. It was, it was no stone was was left standing it was a massacre but jesus had already told his disciples that's not your fight you get out of there and so he saved them from that that wrath it was a he predicted the fall of jerusalem and then told his people but i'm saving you from it don't fight so there was that uh i was also thinking um the the story post joseph is is the exodus from egypt and some of those plagues everyone seemed to to have to endure but then from like plague four or five on, God separated Israel from the Egyptians. And so there's in the book of Exodus, it says specifically, I think starting right around the fourth plague, it's like God's going to send darkness, but there's going to be light in Goshen. God's going to send this plague, but the Israelites are going to be separated so that Pharaoh will know that these are my people. The, the most famous is the Passover. God actually sep- saves his people through the blood of the lamb on the doorpost from the destroyer. So there's... There is precedent mm-hmm. to say God wouldn't pour out his wrath on his people. He saves he saved them in Egypt, mm-hmm. right? And he saved them from Jerusalem. So what's the how do we navigate that with this idea that 
well, of course we're going to suffer. That's yeah. kind of where the question is. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting place. I'm gonna I'm gonna take us to um, uh, one of my favorite phrases of all time. It's not a problem to solve; it's a tension to manage. Nice. Um, I I think yeah. the desire is to take a stand and say, oh, it's absolutely this or it's absolutely that, and it's got to be this way, it's got to be that, but. God's grace and God's justice, God's love for his people and God's willingness to uh, allow them to suffer for his glory is, is on display all the way through scripture. He, he saves Joseph. He's in Pharaoh's, you know, that's great. But would I, if somebody came to me today and said, Hey, you could be Joseph where your brothers betray you, leave you for dead, sell you in slavery. You're going to spend time in prison, but at the end, you're going to, I don't know what I'd choose. I kind of think I like watching sheep. Mm. So there's that dynamic where we just go, how is God going to play this out? It's not going to be an either or um, because it's not been either or anywhere in scripture. I think of Peter, I think of Paul, I think, you know, um, the suffering that happened for the early believers, the persecutions under Diocletian and Nero, and um, it's yeah. so. I I where I land with this is I really hope there's a rapture. I really hope it comes before the tribulation. There's not. There's not no, it would be awesome, <laughs> right? Like, but but at, at the yeah. end of the day, am I willing to suffer for Jesus no matter what comes? Yeah. Yeah. I will. So I I would love it. It's great and it's wonderful to think about. And I'm not going to bank on it. I'm going to build my muscle and my strength to be able to suffer under horrendous persecution and have faith in the midst of it. Yeah. That seems to be a better way to go than to say, eh, I don't really have to get good at suffering mm. because I'm just going to get sucked away. That's good. Yeah, and for me, I was thinking that the tension that for me that's highlighted is to to not turn this into some abstract wrath of God, like he's going to throw down a bolt of lightning and miss me but hit someone else. The, the, the stories, the pictures of all of these, these very apocalyptic images we've been talking through, like the book of Revelation, um, are, are much more concrete. Even the, the warnings about Jerusalem, where Jesus says, flee from Jerusalem, it's about a very concrete moment. Rome is going to come, and you're going to be tempted to pick up the sword and be zealous for your nation, but get out of there. It's not your fight. Uh, the book of Revelation is filled. The, the images of the wrath of God being poured out are actually images of invading armies and, and real political turmoil that's happening. So there may be uh, very legitimate reasons to say God may in every generation tell his followers that one's not your fight. Don't pick up the sword there. Because if you do, it's going it's to end in disaster. And so there are ways that God, even in just continuing to follow God's wisdom and his word and, and listening for when does Jesus say this is your fight and this is not your fight? Because, um, yeah, to, to be rescued from, from Israel or from Jerusalem it was a very political moment. And Jesus is saying, we're going to do it the other way. We're not going to pick up the sword. The book of Revelation, I would argue, has very similar tones. And so we're going to be there in the world, even uh, to be not to be whisked away in a blink of an eye. And then the world just has to fend for itself. But there may be moments 
in our life or in any generation where God says, that one's not your fight. I'm not, get, I'm not taking you out of it, though. You're still going to be here suffering and working alongside the poor and the oppressed. And so there, that's the tension where um, maybe there, there is a way that God will rescue us essentially from particular outpourings of violence and tribulation, but not in this, not in this extreme way of actually like rapturing us away from the earth. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And I see that all through scripture. I, I read devotionally this morning, um, Psalm 20, uh, 22 and, and it's, you know, it's also the, the Psalm that Jesus takes up on the cross, but I was, was reading through it and, and it's a it's a declaration of God's greatness, and a exploration of human suffering, mm-hmm. and then a declaration of God's greatness. Yeah, and that is all what we have to figure out how we're gonna live through and live in, and and I really I really go to James and um, I forget where it is in Corinthians, but you know. Um, uh, our suffering is to shape our faith. God's more concerned about our faith than our comfort. And how 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 do I develop faith? By suffering. That's how I do it. I I have to wait on God. I have to be patient. I have to have fear, and my faith in Him grows in that. I don't think it comes magically. I could be wrong. If you want to correct me, you can. Mm. And it, there is a the the pushback that i i've gotten from friends is to try to separate the idea of christian suffering and the wrath of god to say but we've been saved by the wrath of god and so if like the book of revelation is a clear one where people go to but to say well if this is a, a an outpouring of god's wrath against the sinfulness of the wicked nations mm-hmm. how can we say that we might also that might be poured out on us and uh, and I get that tendency, like theologically, I, I understand where that's coming from to say, well, mm-hmm. Jesus took the wrath for us. So why should I mm-hmm. still have to take it? And I don't know if this is the right answer. I'm, this is still an ongoing conversation for me. But could we say maybe my position with God as a, as a son of God, maybe it changes the, the exact same outpouring might actually be me suffering as a follower of faithful follower of mm. Jesus versus receiving the wrath of God, even mm. if the army's coming and I'm going to suffer right alongside my neighbor. Um, but in a way, my standing with God changes what it is. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but it, it, it's still a, an ongoing. I like what you're saying me. because it, it takes the same action. So, so let's let's talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70 AD. It is an outpouring of wrath. Jesus speaks specifically to the um the destruction of the temple. Remember when he withers the fig tree. Yeah. It is that is a prophetic action about what's going to happen in 70 AD. Um and and others things, but specifically 70 AD. So if I have not chosen to rest in the grace of God, that event is the wrath of God being poured out. If I'm in Jerusalem in 70 AD and I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, now it's an it's a opportunity to express my faith in, in the midst of a difficult time. 
Right. Yeah. Maybe. That, 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 that holds water for me. Yeah. Because, um, it gives us, yeah, it's a good, it, maybe it's a good perspective to think about our witness in the world. Like we, we should, we don't have to think about escaping trouble that's coming our way. We can actually, we can approach it with a new perspective to say, yeah, maybe I don't deserve this, but I can be a witness to, to the goodness of God in the midst of this. Yeah. Well, I think about, can I get political now? Uh-huh. I think about the virus and I think about a lot of evangelical Christians response to the virus. And I understand the desire to deny it. Mm. I understand the desire to deny it because it can't be uh, anything other than hurt coming to the world. Um, or in it, but it can't come at the hands of God. So I just have to deny its existence because God wouldn't have me suffer along with the suffering world. Um, so what do you do with that? That's here's broken. Here's broken, a broken world generating a deadly virus. And how do I cope with that? I, I, I have a choice. I escape it. I get raptured from it or I suffer in it. Yeah. And the suffering is about my faith and it's about putting on display the power of God for the world. The other option is, well, I deny it. I fight against it. I rail against it. That's more of a rapture mentality. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that connection makes complete sense, but. Yeah, that, well, the, the tendency to want to escape versus to stay in it, I think that that feels like a very good biblical application. Mm-hmm. We should be grounded. Our our gospel is not a gospel of escape. Jesus did not die so that he could whisk us away to heaven. He he died and rose from the dead so we could live and actually be his witnesses here on earth. Uh, and so walking alongside the hurting and suffering and saying, like, yeah, that might mean that I'm going to get hurt in the process. Uh, yeah. And I think about that and my immediate thought was, well, but Jesus got whisked away and sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty. But then I went to... Yeah, but then he sends his spirit to dwell in all of us. And so he experiences the personal junk of everybody. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So he's something good there. He is Emmanuel with us, God. And he, his, his church is a with the world church. Yeah. And maybe one, it, it gets a little messy because none of us are perfect. But there is like one difference I could see, at least the ideal in scripture would be if we're following after God, the the choices we're making in the world are actually godly. In which case, if that was like a perfect scenario, the suffering I'm going to suffer from political decisions, from war, from disease, all this stuff is technically not because I've caused it. It's because I'm in the world being a witness to the truth. Sometimes I do actually cause it. I make a decision that then comes back and actually puts me in a bad place. But Mm -hmm. the, the big, you know, so God's people are not supposed to be picking up the sword and using violence um, to perpetuate their ideals. Uh, but we're going to be stuck in a world where there's still a lot of violence. And so that might mean that I get, I get shot. Um, but that doesn't... So there, there's a difference between... Um, like the, I'm thinking of the big picture of like Revelation. It's these nations making decisions that bring the whole world to the brink of chaos. In theory, they're the ones making this decision apart from God. But the Christians are still right there suffering because of those decisions. I don't mm-hmm. know that, that two levels of thinking about it. But. 
Yeah. So how do we wrap this up? I think we wrap it up with, with at the end of the day, our faith is, is this tension to manage. God wants to save, protect, hold, keep us safe. And God wants us to grow our faith. Um, we're in the world. We suffer with the world. Um, we don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card mm. from, from average suffering. Yeah. And just, I would add as a disclaimer, this is more of a question and response than a question and answer. <laughs> but I don't think we have right. the answer. I believe what you we, called us just like, doing is musing. Yeah, we like to muse <laughs> and offer some responses, but we would love some pushback and some more questions and just, and some clarification. But especially around topics like this, I don't feel like I have any clear real answer. It's, no. I have a lot of... Musings. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> it's so true. So yeah, we hope that this helps propel a conversation and we hope it propels you deeper in your faith with Jesus. That's the whole reason we're doing this. So thanks for tuning in and God bless you. Have a great rest of your week and we'll be back next week with more questions specifically that we've received around women in ministry and women with authority and the relationship between women and men. Can't wait. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the Kind Faith community at thekindfaith.org.